Okay. Well, good morning. Good morning. That was nice, wasn't it? I kind of feel like we could have that kind of lounge jazz through the entire of the preach. That would be amazing. Oh, well, oh, they're going. Fine. Okay. Anyway, uh, my name's Sai. As, as Steve said, I'm one of the preaching team here. I just want to say you're really welcome. It's my privilege today uh, to continue our brand new series, If God, Then What? Or If God, So What? You know, we're trying to look at some of the questions that people might have when they're con- contemplating the existence of God. And for some people, the physical existence of God might not be the intellectual barrier they're trying to overcome. They might have no problem believing that there could be a God. Maybe for some people, the questions they have are the ones that arise as a consequence of God's existence. For example, if God exists, why is there so much suffering in the world? And Jeff Page did a brilliant job uh, last week kicking off this series, looking at just that question about why is there suffering in the world. And if you weren't here last week, I wholeheartedly recommend you go and listen to that online. He doesn't offer a blanket answer or a silver bullet for the issue of suffering. But what he does do is ask some thinking questions, you know, ones that really cause us to mull things over, provoke some thinking. I think for some of these questions, this is all we can hope to do, really. We, at the end of the day, need to come to our own conclusions. But if we can just kind of explore some of the answers, some of the questions, uh, maybe we can come to uh, a sense of an answer for some of this stuff. Next week, we've got a very popular question. Lizzie is going to be looking at, if God, then what about science? Now, I deliberately want to mention this because uh, this is a really important question that a lot of people, particularly in this city, uh, will have questions like this. You will know people who are struggling with this issue or perhaps have this question or similar questions. She's going to be looking about how does faith interplay with science? Uh, hasn't science disproved God? All those good questions. So I want to encourage you, as you go away today, to think about who can you invite to come and hear that. It might just spark a life-changing conversation with them. Today, we're going to be looking at another one of these questions, religion. A little spoiler alert, those of you who have been uh, sneaking ahead in the notes, you'll notice that uh, the numbers are a little bit wrong. You'll be pleased to know that the person who's unpacking one of these questions isn't capable of counting from one to three. We have points three followed by uh, points one and two. So just to keep you on your toes, that we're actually going to be going through in order as you see them, not the numbers they are. So apologies for that, but we're looking at this question of religion. If God, then what about religion? Why are there so many religions? What makes them different? Are they important? And we're going to be looking at this because I think it's a very relevant question for today's society. Do you know we're more interconnected today as a planet than we have ever been before? You can send data across the internet from the UK to New Zealand in less than a third of a second. That means, as you'll know, you could take a picture of what's going on here in Cambridge Community Church, Cambridge, UK, and via social media, you could share it with someone on the other side of the planet in less than a few seconds, and they can engage with what's going on right now over 11,000 miles away. That's pretty crazy. That's led to what some people have called the global village, this heightened sense of connectivity. We only have to look at fashion to see the kind of consequences of this. It used to be the case that trends would take time to go across the world. You know, they start in the fashion hearts of the world, and then they take time to dissipate across to other countries and to other cities. But now, what's on the catwalk in Milan is readily available in New York or in the heart of London, and it's only a matter of a short space of time before it makes its way up and down the country 
and onto our local stores. That's crazy. It just shows what difference connectivity makes. Now, there are always exceptions to this. I went on a holiday with uh, Rhiannon up north to visit some family, and I think the north are quite isolated when it comes to fashion. They looked at me like, and this was a couple of years ago, they looked at me like that was the first person they'd ever seen wearing skinny jeans. I felt so out of place, but they are a bit of a lawn to themselves, so we'll let them off. We've got a few northerners, I know. Won't be the first time I offend you in this message, you'll please know. <laughs> so yeah, uh, another consequence of this heightened connectivity is the fact that we're becoming more multicultural as a society. We're exposed now to more beliefs, more cultures and more opinions than ever before. And because of the postmodern culture in which we find ourselves, this has led to the fact that it's become socially acceptable. It's almost become the social norm to have a relativistic outlook on matters of belief and matters of faith. I'm sure you all know someone or you've heard someone say at some point, what's true for you is true for you. That's great. Just, but what's true for me, that's true for me. And I want to start this morning by looking at two questions that I think are similar to that. One, aren't all religions just the same? And two, don't all religions lead to God? Now, I just want to extend a bit of a disclaimer before I look at these. I am not an expert on world religion. I don't profess to know a lot about world faith. And I also want to treat other people's beliefs and faiths with the dignity they deserve because people deserve respect. So I don't want to offend anyone at what I've got to say today when it comes to this. But the good news is I don't think you need to be an expert to uh, start exploring some of these questions, at least on a very fundamental level. For example, the question, are all religions the same, I think is quite easy to answer. No. Of course they're not the same. How can they possibly be the same. Now, they say there's no such thing as a stupid question. At work, we say there's no such thing as a stupid question, only stupid people. Now, I'm not saying that, but that's what we say at work. There's no such thing as a stupid question, but this question, I think, comes pretty close. Now, I don't want to sound flippant in the way I'm talking about this question, so let me expand on that. I think believing the answer yes to this question, are all religions the same, is surely analogous or akin to believing the answer is yes to are all cars the same or are all trees the same or is all music the same? I think people want the answer to be yes to this question. Some people want the answer to be yes to this question because it's a very convenient viewpoint to have on life. And maybe that convenience is born out of one or two things. Tolerance, maybe? The tolerance is the social buzzword of today, isn't it? We're encouraged to be tolerant of all people and of all beliefs. But tolerance doesn't mean we should forego having any personal conviction. It doesn't mean it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for not thinking or coming to our own conclusions and wrestling with these matters which really do have consequences. Or maybe it's ignorance. Now, I don't mean that in the offensive way. I'm not saying people are not capable of exploring or reasoning about these matters. I'm just saying it seems to be now socially acceptable to not know anything about religion, or even not care about religion. Today's society is sadly more secular than ever before. 
teaching on religion has been diminished in schools and in the workplace, where I work in fact, uh, it's actively discouraged for you to talk about any matters of faith or religion, all in the name of tolerance. We may be a bit ignorant. For some, maybe this ignorance is a bit of a blessing. The fact that it's socially acceptable to be ignorant is a bit of a blessing. Because maybe if the answer to this question are all religions the same as no, well, that would have some consequences. That would have some other questions that would need to be answered. Truth is that no one who cares passionately about any subject matter, be it trees, cars, music, or anything else, would ever accept someone else telling them that all things of the kind of thing they care about are the same. It would just fly in the face of what they know, their deeper understanding. It just flies in the face of everything they know. And I think it's equally ignorant for us to suggest that all religions are the same. Let's think about how stuff could be the same. If we were to accept things were all the same, surely it could only ever be at the crudest of approximations. Like, okay, all cars are the same. I suppose you could say that, in that they're all vehicles and they all have wheels, and their usual purpose is to transport people or goods. But what about beyond that? What about the number of wheels they have, or the number of seats, or the mechanism that makes the car move? If you were to go and buy a new car today, you would be posed with enormous variety. Now, I did a bit of research. I'm now a family man. Uh, those of you who don't know, my wife and I recently had a little baby girl, Brooke Ellen Beaumont. She's now four months old. It's been a bit of a roller coaster. If I look shattered today, it's because I am. It's because I am. There was something, though, that surprised me uh, about the time running up to when Brooke was born, and that was actually other parents. You see, as a couple that's soon to become first-time parents, we were suddenly inundated with other existing parents wanting to tell us their war stories. We were like a captive audience. We were suddenly surrounded by wry smiles and warnings of sleepless nights, incessant crying, empty wallet for 18 years, smelly nappies for hopefully less than 18 years. It was crazy. But despite all the warnings, there was one thing I just was not prepared for. All the stuff. All the stuff. Seriously, there was so much paraphernalia involved with having a young baby. It became a tactical mission just to leave the house. Brianna and I considering getting up half an hour earlier each day, get out our glass whiteboard and white pen and draw lines about where we're going to go, who's going to go where, who's going to take what, how we're going to get into the car has become a mission. We just have so much stuff. And it made me think, I need to start trading in my reasonably sized family car, our car, for a transit van. Seriously, there's so much stuff. So I thought, how difficult can it really be to buy a transit van? It turns out that even if you've made your decision to buy a specific make and model of van, you are now posed with the choice of three roof heights, two wheelbases, three overall lengths, and a choice of three engines. That's 54 distinct mechanical configurations, and that excludes minor details, like multimedia options, convenience features, air conditioning, number of doors, type of doors, number of seats, the type of material on the seats, and of course, which color to choose, which would be a no-brainer for us. Ours would be pink, because everything is pink. I would be the only person with a pink transit van. But it got me thinking, with all this, how could anyone who knew that possibly claim that all vans are the same, let alone all cars are the same? And I think it's equally ignorant to suggest that all religions 
are the same. To start with, they have completely different notions about what God is like. Whether there is a God at all, how many gods there are, whether there's life after death, whether it's our goal to reach that life after death or cease to exist altogether, and what we need to do to achieve that goal. And that's not even starting on whether there's any religious texts. Do they exist? How are they to be interpreted? What consequences do they have for us in our daily life? I really think the only conclusion we can come to is no. All religions are not the same. But what do they have in common? For a moment, why don't we treat ourselves to a little bit of ignorance? How far do we need to zoom out before all religions start to look the same? Maybe there's some common ground. It's probably fair to say that most religions share a lot of ethical convictions with each other. You know, they often advocate peace and don't actively promote murder, rape, or theft. And there are probably many other parallels that could be drawn if you were to take any two religions and compare them. But I want to suggest to you one thing that I think sums up all religions. They're all mankind's search for something with bigger meaning than the individual. They are all human beings search for something with more importance than themselves. It, it fulfills an innate desire within us. You only have to go to a football stadium to see that everybody has that desire. With the crowds of people in huge stadia chanting and singing louder than we would sing on a Sunday morning, all because they have this inside desire right deep inside them to do something bigger than themselves, to join with other people and do something bigger than ourselves. And since we're looking this morning at the consequences of God existing, we could say perhaps that all religions are mankind's search for God. Which brings us on to the second of those questions that I posed earlier. Even if all religions are not the same, surely they all lead to the same God. And maybe they're all just different ways of understanding the same God. Since I'm not an expert on world religion, as I've said already, I decided to do a little bit of research on this. And among other things, in the hope of getting a handle on the question, but don't all religions lead to God, I went on Amazon and I found a book called, But Don't All Religions Lead to God. It seems like a good place to start. It wasn't the only thing I read, but it certainly had a lot of answers. It didn't have all the answers, and actually it posed a lot of questions. But there's one thing that the author, Dr. Michael Green, did say, which I thought was very good. He chose to highlight the differences between the major faiths when it comes to the nature of God. I'll read what he says. The divine in Hinduism is impersonal, though approached through countless deities and statues. The Muslim Allah is personal with no subordinate deities and an absolute prohibition of idols or any other way of representing God. Buddhism is religion without God and even without a final existence. Christianity teaches that God both forgives and also offers supernatural aid. But in Buddhism and Hinduism, there is no forgiveness, only ruthless karma and no supernatural aid. He goes on to explore other aspects. We haven't got time today. I won't bore you with the details. But the conclusion he draws that is simply this. They cannot all lead to the same God because they're not searching for the same God. Some of them are not even searching for God at all. And I think he makes a good case. They can't all be leading to the same God and yet at the same time all be right in what God is and the nature of God. So I'd like to propose a slightly simpler answer to this question. Don't all religions lead to God? And on the surface you might think that this 
answer lacks any intellectual rigor or I haven't really thought it through, but I wholeheartedly believe this. No religion leads to God. It's my belief that no religion, no moral code or set of customs or traditions can ever lead to God. Instead, I believe that the Bible teaches us that it's only through a person that we can find God. And that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus' own words are recorded in the book of John. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is what sets Christianity apart from other religions. Jesus. The clue is in the name. Without Christianity, without Christ, sorry, Christianity is nothing. It's just eanity, almost insanity, right? Without Christ, Christianity is meaningless. In fact, devoid of Jesus, Christianity actually shares a lot of failings and frailties as any other religion. Its history has been marred by torture and war. It's had a reputation for greed and lies. In some instances, it's been accused of being boring, moralistic, and authoritarian. Do you know why? Because it's made up of people. Christians are people like you and like me. They are failed and they are imperfect. So it's not the religious aspects of Christianity that make it so special. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ himself. So I want to take the time we've got left to look at this question of, well, what's so special about Jesus? What does Jesus offer us that religion with a capital R could never offer us? And I suggest it's three things. Number one, number three for you, if you're paying attention, uh, it's not religion we need, it's a revelation. You see, unlike other holy books, the Bible doesn't record uh, mankind's search for God. It's the opposite. It records God's search for mankind. God wants to find us and he wants to know us. It records God's search for human beings. You see, our search for him was always going to fail. We were always going to not find him. We were not going to understand him. Not because of who he is, but just because we are failed. We're imperfect. None of us is perfect. None of us is all-knowing. We are finite, imperfect people trying to wrap our heads around a perfect and infinite God. It would be like an ant trying to understand the universe. We were kind of destined to fail, but God knew this. It's fine. He knew that we, as a human race, wouldn't be able to wrap our heads around exactly what God is and the full nature of God unless he chose to reveal himself to us. A revelation. Without a revelation, we can so often get things wrong. I recently got things wrong until I got a revelation. A couple of months ago, uh, Rhiannon was uh, saying to me, you know, you're a dad now, you need to do something with your daughters, a daddy bonding exercise. I thought, yeah, sounds good. I'm a modern man, look at me in my skinny jeans. I want to be a hands-on dad. What did you have in mind? She said, dads and baby massage. I thought, great, sounds brilliant, sign me up. And we didn't really talk much about it for a little while, till one day. She comes home from meeting with some of her friends and she says to me, it's really great that you're willing to do something like that. Not every dad would want to do something like that. I looked a bit puzzled, to be honest, and 
thought, well, you've got to take the credit where you can, really. So I just smiled and nodded and thought, yeah, great. Then she said, it's great you're going to learn a new skill. And I thought, what? A new skill? She said, yeah, you're going to learn to comfort the baby. Then it dawned on me, I wasn't going to get a massage. I wanted a massage. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. I couldn't understand why any other dad would not be up for this. See, I thought me and my baby girl were going to go and lie next to each other and receive massages. You know, maybe have cucumbers on the eyes or head, you know, put face first into a cushioned circle like a toilet seat and just talk. You know, catch up, have a massage, talk about the day. But no, unfortunately, that was not it. I got the wrong end of the stick. I needed Rhiannon to reveal it to me. So we sat down and we looked at the website and all became clear. I've got to be honest, I was a little bit disappointed. But I went and it was really good. But you see, I had to see it to understand it. I had to see it with my eyes before I really understood. And guess what God did? He knew that we as a human race wouldn't understand the nature of God in its fullness, in his fullness, with, unless we see him with our eyes. And that's why he sent himself. He sent Jesus, part of Godhead. He chose to reveal himself to us. Unlike other religions, he doesn't just choose to reveal his will to us. Or he doesn't choose to reveal his word to us or just stay revealing himself to us via prophets. He chose to reveal himself to us himself. And not in a way that we couldn't access or relate to as some supreme deity. He chose to become like us. The Bible puts it like this. I think this verse is in your notes. The message paraphrase. It says, He had equal status with God. That's Jesus. But didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. Became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. This sets Jesus apart. In his coming to earth, we have the combination of a God who is so unimaginably great, yet so defined by love for us he would want to become one of us. Make no mistake, Jesus was not just a religious teacher, nor was he a prophet pointing the way to God. He was God. Fully human, and yet fully God. This has massive implications to us. You know, he can relate to us. He knew what it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to be hungry. Perhaps he knew what it was like to be bored. He certainly knew what it was like to be angry, and he knew what it was like to grieve the loss of a friend. He knew what it was like to be tempted. He knew what it was like to be human. And yet, he was God. He was perfect, and he made no mistakes. Jesus is God revealed on earth. Number two, this. Number one for you. Some conversations I've had with people about what happens after we die, I've just been met with blatant indifference. And I put to you, it's not a religion we need, it's a rescuer. 
you know, people I've talked to, they don't even know if there's an afterlife, whether heaven exists, whether they'll end up there, somewhere else, or nowhere at all. They just have no idea. But we as Christians here, we believe that there is an afterlife called heaven where we will spend eternity with Jesus. And I thought this morning I'd share a joke with you about heaven. That's right. You all look like you're in need of a good joke. So here we go. I just want to say before I tell the joke that if you have got any complaints about the joke, maybe it offends you in some way or it's theologically inaccurate, you can send your complaints to me at steve.campbell at the c 3 UK. See, that was Steve's joke. I used that one. Okay. So here we go. On their way to get married, a loving couple get into a car accident and die. Okay, it's not the best start to the joke. Already we're one sentence in and two people who love each other very much have died on what's supposed to be the best day of their life. But it gets better. Here we go. The couple lived a good life, so they went to heaven. There they found themselves sitting outside waiting on St. Peter to finish the paperwork. While waiting, they wonder if they could possibly get married in heaven, since they just missed out while they were on earth. When St. Peter returned, they asked him. St. Peter replied, I don't really know. It's the first time anyone's ever really asked. Let me go and find out. And he leaves. Now Peter is gone a long time, and the couple are sitting there for two whole months, and they start to wonder if this is really a good idea. You know, what with the whole eternal aspect of it all. Till death do us part doesn't really work up there, because you're kind of already dead. They were thinking things like, what if it doesn't work out? Are we really stuck together forever? Finally, St. Peter returns after yet another month, looking somewhat bedraggled, and he says, yes, you can get married in heaven. Great, say the couple. Just one more question. If things don't work out, is there any chance we could get a divorce in heaven? Now Peter fumes up, angry and red-faced. He slams his clipboard on the floor. He says, you've got to be kidding me. It took me three months to find a priest up here. Do you have any idea how long it's going to take to find a lawyer? Now, I'm sorry if there's any lawyers here or priests. <laughs> the joke is riddled with theological inaccuracies, wrong on so many levels. But the first of these inaccuracies, I think, is perhaps earlier than you might think. Right at the start, we said they were, the couple lived a good life, so they went to heaven. This view is actually more popular than you might think. A large percentage of people believe that this is all it takes. It doesn't really matter what you believe. If you're a good person, then that's enough. It fits in nicely with our Western culture that says, you know, you get what you deserve. It's banged into us as we grow up. You know, you work hard, maybe you can make, make something of yourself. Maybe you can make more money. The harder you work, the better you'll do. You get what you deserve. I'm so grateful that the Christian message flies in the face of this. It throws it out the window. With Jesus, we don't have to get what we deserve because I've got bad news. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. This is the beautiful gift that's available to us. Grace. And it stems from God's mercy. You see, God isn't just giving us what we don't deserve. He's withholding from us what we do deserve. You see, unlike in the joke, heaven isn't full of good people. In the Bible, the afterlife it speaks of, there's no more death, no more suffering, no more mourning, crying, or pain, no more persecution, and no more hunger or thirst. We only have to look around the world in which we live today to tell that we, by our own human nature and our own imperfections, we're not capable of living in a world with no 
pain and no suffering. We can't make it on our own. We would taint it. We would taint the perfection of heaven. The Bible puts it this way in Romans 3. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, although God is a merciful God, he's also a God of justice. This means he can't just turn a blind eye. He can't just sweep all of our mishaps and mess-ups under the carpet and pretend they didn't happen. If he's to look at us and he's to see us as perfect, then all those things we've done, all those times we've messed up, all those times where we've gone our own way and done something we know we shouldn't, they all have to be paid for. They all have to be counterbalanced by something. And he's willing for that to happen. It just needs to be done. We've got bad news, though. We can't do it on our own. There's nothing we can do to pay for our mistakes. We could never right the wrong we've done, but God knew that. Just like he knew we wouldn't be able to understand him unless he revealed himself to us, he knows we can't make up for the wrong we've done. So he made a plan. He sent his son, Jesus, on a rescue mission for mankind. Jesus led a blameless life. He's the only person who could live, who's ever lived, who could really say he did nothing wrong. And yet he was punished for all the stuff that we've done. For all the stuff that anyone's done. He took the blame for us. For me and for you, for all people, and for all time. If we want him to. If we're willing to accept Jesus as our rescuer. You know, in religious terms, we might call it a saviour. If we're willing to let him save us, then God considers the, bet, the debt paid. He looks at us and he sees perfection because of the work that Jesus did when he died for all the wrongdoing that man could ever do. That's the good news. It's good news. That's the good news of Christianity. And there's better news. It's not just for good people. You don't have to be good. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, whether you're good or bad. This gift, this gift of grace is available to you. You can have right standing with God and there's nothing you can do to earn it or pay back. It's a gift and it's free for the taking. One of my favorite verses is in Romans 5. And it sums it up and it says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, in other words, while we were still bad people, while we were still messed up, while we were still failing, he died for us. And all we have to do is accept him and turn from our ways, follow him. The Bible calls that repentance. And heaven won't be full of religious people, but be full of repentant people. We are all in need of a rescuer. And that's what we have in Jesus, the ultimate rescuer. Finally, this, as the musicians join me on stage, it's not religion we need. It's a relationship. We've looked already at the revelation of God as Jesus is born, and we've looked at the rescuer that Jesus was and is as he died for us. But I am grateful 
I am so grateful that that is not where the story ends. Jesus didn't just die. He rose again. He rose from the dead, and he is alive today. And he wants to have an active part in your life. Not if you lived 2,000 years ago. He wants to have an active part in your life today. Jesus himself said these words after he had risen from the dead, but before he went to heaven, he said, I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming back. In just a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you are going to see me because I am alive and you're about to come alive. At that moment, you will know absolutely that I am in my Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. In other words, if you invite him in, he will come and live alongside you, inside your heart, and you can have a real relationship with him. You can have assurance from accepting the work that Jesus has done, assurance that when this life ends or this world ends, you will have an eternity with him. You will be saved for what he's done, and all you have to do is respond to his invitation. In a moment, you'll have opportunity to do just that. But before we do that, I wonder if we could just stand. The band are going to lead us in this song. And it tells the story of the work that Jesus has done for us. Let's stand and sing.